0: There are so many opportunities to use freedom technologies to build civil disobedience, to put power into the hands of individuals, and Bitcoin's part of that.
1: Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they've provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash peter, which is BCB. Peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is l-e-d-g-e-r.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the U.S. who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I dot com. Also, today we have Casa. Whether you've just bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account and enjoy a 30 day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best in class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-S-A.
2: Austin, good to see you again, man.
0: Hey, great to see you, Peter.
2: A couple of good shows we made before people enjoyed them a lot. uh, said, when are you going to get Austin back on the show? And here we have you now. Um, Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Um, There's a couple of good things I want to talk to you about, actually. Uh, One of the things that you sent across to me ahead of time was, uh, I thought it was quite interesting to see coming from you, as, as somebody who's been involved in Bitcoin for a long time, seen all the attacks on Bitcoin, been a defender of Bitcoin, uh, but starting to think about absolutism within the Bitcoin community, and has it come? Have we come to a time where perhaps we need to start shifting our focus? Uh, you know, Bitcoin's so much bigger now, and uh, every major global news story at the moment has a Bitcoin angle. Lots of people are coming into Bitcoin trying to learn about it, but there's still like that. that kind of internal fighting on a number of issues, and it's something that's been on my mind a lot, and to see you mention it was kind of interesting.
0: Well, so one of the approaches I think we have to take intelligently about uh, the longevity of Bitcoin, being able to defend it as a community, as a uh, free money, as an ecosystem, is to just think very intelligently about what are the battles that actually matter What are the the principles or the systems that you can't compromise on? Because a compromise on those actually builds inherent long-term systemic risk to everyone, right? So um, I would refer to those as technical or engineering compromises. So if someone comes out and proposes saying, hey, there's a brand new crypto algorithm. My 14-year-old invented it this weekend. And I really think it's better than anything else out there. Let's adopt that. I would be absolutist. I would support, and I think the community should be absolutist because it violates one of the core design principles we talked about last time in New York, which is this focus on security and taking the least risky approach, assuming a very large attack population or surface. So adopting something technically that would reduce the security framework or might offer some benefits – but also include some trade-offs that might backfire because of unintended consequences. So right now, for instance, and I'm not fully up to speed, so but there's a big debate inside of the Bitcoin core community around some of the discrete log contracts and the smart contracting functions that come with Taproot. Because when you start to include those with oracles, you, you could enable a whole bunch of great functionality. So some things that I absolutely love, I would love to see. In fact, I would help fund. Someone comes to me with a peer-to-peer sports betting app. Great. Sports results are very easy to have, Oracle's. You can have multiple signed sources. You can have two people agree. You and I can agree that we're betting on the outcome of the Super Bowl, and we're going to agree that the outcome is decided by Fox News, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN's sports feed. We're going to take the best results of those three and, you know, if they all agree on the result, then the winner of our sports bet. Sports betting is so popular; it's uh, it's an industry that could bring tons of people into Bitcoin. You could actually ch- totally change the odds. So, uh, it's not my thing. I'm not a big sports better, but that's an application that I think has been. There's so much profit share, uh, profit extraction being done by gambling houses and by centralized companies. So there's just. I see that as benefit, 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 benefit. But that same functionality that you would build to add that, if it's misused to put restrictions on people's coins, which is one of the debates, so you can put an encumbrance now because Bitcoin will be spent to an address that is dependent, you're now affecting fungibility, you could potentially start to end up in issues where shared multi-coin wallets get actually very contested, and you start seeing more uh, litigation around the outcome of Bitcoin. So tons of things in Taproot are really, really good, and we're seeing more fungibility, more privacy, uh, more advanced multi-sig that I think will help the world deal with custody. You know, I deal with this with some of my family members who are becoming elderly. What happens if someone were to pass? right? How do we deal with inheritance? How do we deal with key splitting? And I would love for some of my relatives who aren't that technical to have multi-sig set up where we could do more advanced. It's not just two of three, it's two of three and any one of the following trusted people. Um, But so that's an example of something that we can look at at a technical basis and say, does this bring more people into Bitcoin? Does it create inherent risk? Taking another stance like Bitcoin has been attacked for its energy usage. People use FUD around, you know, pollution and climate change to attack something we love. Therefore, any promotion of climate change means you're not a true Bitcoiner. I find that just a harder argument to win, regardless of what stance you take. Okay, some people would say the science on this is absolutely clear. Other people say, no, the science has been totally politicized. I think some of, both of those things can be equally true, depending on certain parts of the study. But if you look at it from a pure communication for results point of view and think about, OK, what are the principles that we're most fighting for? Individual sovereignty, distribution globally of the hash rate. Um, you can look at it and say, okay, does Bitcoin end up doing good by funding green power and funding energy independence? If you are someone who believes that humans are contributing, or someone who just says, I love the planet, give it all things being equal, I prefer hydropower over petrodollar power. Petrodollar power also has allowed a whole bunch of very corrupt governments to profit at the hands of their citizens. So you can take a, a non-politicized view of this and say, you know what? I'm not gonna, that's not the hill I'm going to die on. I'm not going to take a stance that says to be a true bitcoiner like me, you need to have my same point of view on this very contentious ish- issue. So, um I think there are issues like, you know, cer- certain one responses in here become just memes and community, you know. I enjoy steak dinner. I don't think you can o- only have to eat meat to be a Bitcoiner, right? (laughs) Like if subscribing to the carnivore diet is the only way the world's going to enjoy free money, then the free money design is broken somehow. (laughs) Because there are going to be billions of people in Africa and India and other places who their primary diet source isn't. Now you can argue for the fact that, hey, I think there's more education and funding needed on better nutrition science. Because most nutritional science is literally quack diets since the 70s with ever shifting, you know, pin the tail on the docky for food pyramids, for what's health. So you can say, I wanna take my Bitcoin profits and fund better food education. But don't use that as a means to judge on whether or not someone is a Bitcoiner or whether or not someone is the right type of Bitcoiner. Because I think that kind of absolute moralism, actually, that's how you build a cult. That's not how you build an open, free network, because we didn't have it for the internet. If I came to you in 1995, 1997, saying there's this incredible thing called TCPIP, you can publish a web page. You can quit your job, Peter, right? Like, you don't have to work for the man anymore. You don't have to be an ad salesman. You can actually go and create a podcast. But... Only if you believe in the following things, you need to be a Scientologist, you need to be a this, you need to uh, you know, believe in the right type of diet and porn or and the right political party, only then can you enjoy TCPIP. Another network protocol that didn't have those restrictions, that was more inclusive, that focused on doing the same job for everyone would have overtaken TCPIP and i just view bitcoin as that i view it as the protocol for financial sovereignty and freedom in the world and so let's focus on how to make the protocol the most robust against real attacks cuz you know a real attack when we start seeing what's happening playing out in the world today are things like cutting off half the internet as we're seeing happened in russia right now shutting down half the world's power centers because we end up in some sort of firing war or cyber war takes down those are real attacks. We should be focusing and thinking on, not whether or not someone believes in the same Twitter war you do.
2: Are there some differences though when comparing to the internet? Uh, so, firstly, when we talk about carnivore, is that not really just a sub community within Bitcoin? And yeah, you get the odd moron on Twitter say so you, you're not really a Bitcoiner. But, and I'm I'm going contrarian whilst I agree yeah. with you. And isn't it also there are like a large difference in that the internet was just an open free communication platform and whilst Bitcoin is an open free uh, monetary uh, system, the the implications of moving to a Bitcoin standard have uh, a large political impact potentially and therefore people have assigned politics
0: to it. Well, so uh, some people kind of remember some of these the history of the internet um a bit differently just depending on when you came and how involved you were but the internet what didn't automatically become the free open internet we see it okay there were a number of key decision points and key time frames when it was fundamentally under attack so uh i believe it was 1997 john postel who developed the essentially mail system and kind of ran the Mm. biggest spam list as a volunteer. Um, The U S government came to him because he controlled the root key servers for the entire internet. One guy. I don't know any of this. Yeah. So John Postel ran the top level DNS mapping. So he can, he can controlled where all TCP IP numbers found their routing and where all domain names found their TCP IP numbers. So now the root servers are held by, you know, a distributed group of engineers under uh, ICANN. But at the time, it was one org. And the U.S. government came to him and said, we had given you this control because it's our our system. We invented this. Please hand it back. And he said no. One principled individual that changed the entire course of the Internet. He said, this shouldn't belong to you. It's a global uh, network. You invented the protocol, but you can't govern it. And I'm going to wait until an organization can take over that's multinational and international and has representative democracy. And he did. There were a number of other steps like this throughout the course of the Internet where very strong stances. The Church of Scientology, for instance, they were one of the, you know, most aggressive and horrendous attackers against free speech on the Internet. Um Adam and I, you know, and the early cypherpunks found this out very quickly because the first most popular anonymous remailer was called anon.penet.fi. It was run in Finland and it was a non-encrypted mail mapping. So you could go to anon.penet.fi and give your email address and they would map it to an alias and they essentially, it was a pseudonym service. And a bunch of people were using the pseudonyms on it to publish internal Church of Scientology documents that embarrassed them and they claimed copyright over. They sued and won a court case forcing him to shut it down, which led to the creation of encrypted remailers that Adam and a number of people started to run, which was the cypherpunk response, which is no one person should have that trust. We can use encryption to solve that. And so that pushed the world through, but, the entire creation of litigation and large, powerful organizations that would be able to attack your privacy was fought back with encryption and then gave birth to essentially the Communication Decency Act and some of the privileges that someone could say, I'm not responsible for the actions of my users and led to a general preference, not all the time, but a general preference among service providers to say, if you come and ask us the identity of a user you have to show us that you're legitimate law enforcement or you have a warrant. Um, I believe, and a lot of privacy advocates believe, that didn't go far enough. Right? We're seeing Google, for instance, respond to geographic warrants, if you're familiar with. So what happens is there's a crime committed, and someone goes in and says, show me all Google Maps searches and all Google searches that existed within a 30-block radius within this time frame. And they essentially do like a deep sea fishing where everyone's records get turned over as opposed to identifying the actual person who, and so encryption and privacy should have gone further. And that's where I think there's a general regret that some of the privacy tools the cypherpunks did worked on and wanted to see aside from eCash have not had the same growth. We see Tor, but Tor is suspect to a number of attacks, um, encrypted email we've had PGP since the 60s and 70s still hardly ever used
2: it's so hard to use if you're not a technical person that's one
0: of the problems is you know the growth of these tools making them very safe and easy and the people who tried to make that um, faced a lot of government pressure not to do it mm-hmm. so and I won't name names right now of certain companies but um, there was another encrypted email provider that actually got a very large warrant and the government basically asked them to turn off encryption and start logging users and they shut down the entire service and refused to follow that. So, so this person literally, literally cratered his business and said, if you ask me to go against the interest of my users, I won't. So, um, and I guess what, what I'm trying to say is we take for granted I think a lot of the little battles and little choices that over time did give us some of the freedoms that we enjoy on the internet. And so when we look to the analogies in Bitcoin, I think it, it should cause us to understand, okay, these battles actually start to really matter. Tax policy on mining, like get, getting really, really, really supportive with, you know, If every single Bitcoiner was running around the world saying we will never pay taxes and we believe in the fall of government and this asset grew, how long do you think it is before the government say, okay, if you're a rogue, underground, dark net economy, that we have no participation or taxation or involvement, or, you know, if that's your game, we'll find a way to shut it down, right? And you would probably see the similar responses what they went after Silk Road, which, you know, you can argue drug policy all you want, but it's hard to argue that as a free participatory peer-to-peer drug marketplace that existed at the same time that the Purdue's were selling OxyContin and becoming billionaires Mm -hmm. and having universities named after them, how is this equal justice?
2: Well, it, it isn't.
0: But one is done within the framework of paying taxes, paying taxes, being legitimate, funding politicians. So, you know, this is why I think some of what's happening today in Bitcoin is so exciting because I actually think we're beginning to see Bitcoin become a single issue, you know, on politics. I think we have a number of politicians who we should be trying to encourage to be the best politicians and get them on the ballot. And get big, you know, politicians who actually own Bitcoin and understand free money. So, you know, El Salvador is one of those. But what if it were five more like El Salvador? What if we had a league of Latin, Latin American, and African nations who had, you know, Bitcoin? Whether it was a full national currency or their economy had major support through Bitcoin, through mining, natural resources, Bitcoin development loans, loans for their citizenry. And it was creating the economic impact and liftoff such that they'll stand up to the IMF, they'll stand up on the world stage and say, Bitcoin was part of our economic progress and we support it the same way they did for cell phones. Mm -hmm. And then you actually saw some of those countries start partnering with G7 and G8 countries. We could see a shift in the world's economy that would bring more people into Bitcoin faster, which ultimately is one of my hopes because if the price balloons... So fast beyond certain people's ability to kind of incorporate it in their lives, incorporate it in their savings, then it becomes you get that same backlash we did on the dot-com. And there, you know, and that massive pullback can actually, for a long time and at a critical time, because as we talked about last time, I think the next 10 years are so critical. And we're seeing it play out with currency wars, yeah. with uh, you know. Kinetic wars based off currency wars, energy wars, and we haven't even gotten started yet for throwing in like some of the singularity technologies we talked about last time. So, if we do not accelerate and try and raise all people's boats as fast as we can, then the, and it's not inequality, right? You know, people use the word inequalities, the world is unequal. But everyone needs to at least have the the same starting point and should have access to the same opportunity set. And just because of where you live or the random dice of, you know, hey, I happen to live in a country that just got hit by a major flood and I got economically displaced and I had all my money in a $40,000 hut (laughs) that just got uh, destroyed. Am I forever going to be denied economic opportunity or can I say, you know what? I picked up and moved to the United States because I had 40 or 50% of my savings in an asset that grew 300% over the last couple of years. And when that happened, I was able to hop on a plane, show up to Canada, show up to France, show up to the UK, and say, I'm a productive member of society, and I deserve a place, and I'd like to work, and I'd like to be productive, and I'd like to pay my taxes and be a healthy member of your society. I'd much rather the latter than a bunch of people sitting there saying... You know, no one cares about me and feeling angry.
2: Is it that you're worried that uh, some forms of absolutism or some forms of cohorts that are grouping around certain narratives is going to put people off? I mean, because I'm, I'm, look, I'm with you on the energy thing. I think my position on that is pretty clear. Uh, from what I've read, the people I've spoken to, the experts, um, pumping carbon into the atmosphere is not good for the environment. But at the same time, I'm, I'm not here, sat here saying we should stop burning fossil fuels because it has a risk, but I do believe we should start looking at energy policy. Uh, and as I notice more moderates and lefties come in, and even people on the right who uh, admit that climate change is an issue, that if we as a cohort look to disproportionately like we are of the belief that uh, climate change isn't an issue, does it potentially... Uh, Make the people coming in and think maybe these Bitcoiners are crazy, or is that what you're worried about?
0: My worry is on a couple levels. Um, I think the most fundamental part of it, and I think this is one of the downsides of social media and social media. And the, I mean, we struggled with it when we were building our pseudonymity service, is the idea that pure anonymity or identities with no cost tend to create this what's called, you know, in iterated prisoner's dilemma. It becomes a race to the bottom. Whereas if you invest in your identity and there is a cost to it, you tend to be a little bit more cautious about the things you say because at the end of the day, it's like, I want to be able to sit down with that person. That's why so, you know, I used to try and get in arguments with people on social media or when they would troll me, I would respond. But at a certain point, I was just like, you know what? I DM them, say, I'm happy to buy you a coffee anytime. Come say that to my face. And if you want to make that a point, I may agree with you. I may not. But healthy people can disagree. (laughs) And almost everyone just goes away or they're like, oh, you're so much nicer than I thought. Uh, I expected you to, you know, troll me. And so freedom money and the principles that I think take, uh, you know, supersede so many of these debates will require you to have people you disagree with. Fundamentally, about some big issues, sit next to you and own the same asset class you do. So I tend to focus on okay, why create waves or why create the ability for enemies of freedom money to paint us as crazies, to minimize the impact, to in some cases just ignore? I mean, it was one of my biggest criticisms of some of the altcoins, not that. They shouldn't exist. It's free open source software. And yes, there were scammy behavior. Like tons of horrible marketing, scammy uh, profit sharing, like by how they do coin distribution. But that exists in a lot of industries, right? There are lousy people doing telemarketing fraud. There are lousy people doing other Ponzi schemes. Like that wasn't my biggest concern with it. My biggest concern was if that's someone's first experience with digital currency and they get rug pulled and they're on the downside of this, what if that means they're not going to participate in the real revolution, Bitcoin, for five to ten years?
2: Well, we know that exists because whenever I get approached by friends or family or friends friend's family and they start asking about uh, Bitcoin, uh, there are people out there who just think it's a scam. I mean, in buying the football club… I've had journalists within the football sector who do not understand what Bitcoin is. They group it in with all cryptocurrencies, and they some of them cannot see the difference between Bitcoin and an NFT. They've just lumped, lumped, lumped it all together, and they think there is a scam going on. So I'm with you on that. On the anonymity thing, that's a, that's a super interesting point, because I, I've, I've had very public opinions about certain things. They've come back to bite me. I've thought very quickly or I've tweeted very quickly a response to a, a situation in the news, whether it's what's happening with the war at the moment, whether it's COVID, and I've proven to be wrong or n- missed the nuance. And I did an interview yesterday on this uh, uh, podcast and they were asking me about some of these things. And I said, uh, because my identity, yeah, essentially I'm agreeing with you. I didn't say these words, but essentially because my identity is public and because my career is public, there is a cost to be, being wrong. Uh, and so I have to invest more time in really trying to think or think through things so I give a more genuine or accurate balanced opinion on things. So I did it recently. I, I wrote a, a thread in response to Safer Dean's climate change thread, which was a very considered and I thought balanced Reply, because that's the responsibility of the job.
0: Yeah. Well, and we have to understand that our detractors and attackers are going to take our words and take them out of context. So <laughs> it's a funny kind of story. Um, so back when I started Zero Knowledge with Adam, yeah. when we were building, obviously, this NSA-proof anonymity, pseudonymity system, um, I started doing media articles. I was a young geek and I was used to debating things on the cypherpunk mailing list and all these like very hard libertarian communities. And I was like a full-on Randite libertarian and, uh, you know, had very strong beliefs that were, you know, somewhat associated with my age and my, you know, just what I had experienced at that point in life. And so there would be these reporters who would come in and do like you know, three-hour interviews with me talking about, hey, the dangers of technology. Are you ever worried a criminal might use this system? Are you ever worried a pedophile might use this system? What about a terrorist? And I would go into a very nuanced, long-winded conversation where I'd be like, you know, the same knife that can be used by, you know, an attacker can be a scalpel used by a doctor to save you. You know, the, an ambulance can, in the wrong hands, drive someone over, or it can pick you up and bring you to the hospital. Technology itself is inherently neutral, and, uh, you know, it's the user of the technology who has the morality. And the article would come, would come out and be like, Austin supports child pornographers using his system. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of like, that's not what I said. And, but I, and so I, at one point, after so many of these articles backfired on me, The company finally got me media training and, you know, I was kind of like, this is ridiculous, but I actually learned a lot. And one of the techniques that they go through is how to talk like a politician, which just unfortunately is so painful.
2: A lot of words that mean nothing.
0: Well, and what they refer to as something called ATM not A 2 M. That's something different. Don't search that. Um, ATM <laughs> is an answer transfer message. Uh, um, just careful for the audience. Uh, I don't know how young our audience is. Uh, so answer transfer message would be when someone came back to me after and said, aren't you worried about pedophiles using your system? I'm like, I think we can all agree that pedophilia is a horrible thing and we're so glad that parents now have our tool to protect their children against it, period. Answer, transfer message, just, and that's it. Yes, it took the dumbing down of it, but especially with an untrusted source, you, your ability to go into nuance and have your words taken away, social media and the 140 character back, quick back and forth, I think also has that tendency where it's so easy to just have a quick answer and the nuance gets lost. So you have to kind of focus on, okay, what is my actual media message? And early on in Bitcoin, when I first started spending a lot of time in Bitcoin, there were a couple of Bitcoiners, I won't name them uh, publicly, but they were fairly prominent at that time in the Bitcoin community. Open source developers, some very strong opinions. And there were a couple of them who literally were going out and saying, Bitcoin is money for ISIS because free free money is money for your enemy and terrorists. And Adam and I were laughing. And and at one point I said, can we do a crowdfunder to do media training for these people? Because that's just not the message we want Bitcoin to be associated. That may be true. It is free money. But do you really stand up in the middle of what was going on in the world and say, I support ISIS money? Right? Of course you don't. It's just, it's not smart communications, Right. It's like, you know, you don't run up to the U.S. government and say, I'm supporting something that will represent your downfall because I believe you're all evil, corrupt people, and you deserve to, you know, fall the way Rome did. Is that really going to help? Is it going to get you anywhere? No Is it going to make you friends?
2: A lot of people do talk like that. Yeah,
0: And I would hope that the conversation would actually evolve to one of harm reduction and less suffering. What is going to provide the less suffering for humanity? What is going to provide the most economic freedom? Because if you believe in those principles, you don't want to see people suffer and a system fail. You want to see a system evolve and you want to help society get there by funding better politicians, better technologies. The work that Alex Gladstein is doing with the Human Rights Foundation is incredible because he literally goes into parts of the world where the use of freedom money is the difference between living and dying. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I need to get his new book, actually.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm wait, I just ordered my copy. Um, but these are stories we can get behind. These are stories we should promote. And it's not because you can't have those beliefs because who am I to judge anyone's beliefs? This is, this is freedom money. This is a free society. Privately, I'll have a, a drink with someone and talk about, you know, whether or not capitalism is good, whether or not socialism is good, whether or not UBI has a role, or whether or not, a, you know, a capitalist-based society based off Bitcoin can actually alleviate the need of UBI because those are worthwhile, really good discussions to have. But to stand up and say anyone willing to pay taxes to support this government does, you know, is evil. Just I, I don't think that's. At least in my book, that's not how I choose to promote a technology that I think can alleviate human suffering.
2: It's just not smart either. This is why I wrote my reply to Safer because this is the author of probably the best-selling, one of the best-selling Bitcoin books, if not the best-selling Bitcoin book. The book that a lot of people will read first. Perhaps follow him on social media, and then they're going to see a raven lunatic who is got some pretty, not, his some of his ideas aren't consensus on particular topics and the delivery method is, you know, it's not one of nuance and balance and empathy. It's a position of I'm right, you're wrong. If you disagree with me, you're stupid. I'm part of the intelligent 10% who understand this. You're not. You're a soy boy. You're a hysteric and I'm going to block you. So you can send somebody on a journey, which is, which, well, you can essentially, you could, you could bring somebody here who might be interested in Bitcoin. Then they completely knock them back out. And it's like, Oh, I heard, I heard Bitcoin was a uh, right wing uh, supremacist money. Yeah. This guy's proven it to me. And, and that, that was, that was the, the, the sense behind the reply, the thread. Danny reviewed it with me. we, we picked every word carefully, and uh, all that led to was being called an attention-seeking, attention-seeking whore. Or, was that? Or was <laughs> I that...
0: think it was that? Yeah, so,
2: yeah. And it's just like, how the fuck is this helpful?
0: Yeah, and I mean, without getting into that specific one, there are uh, there are there are some people in Bitcoin who I I have had nuanced disagreements with, whose reaction to that is very, it's, it's outsized with the discussion that we were supposed to be having in the sense that, you know, the reaction to be debate or the reaction to being called out, or even to just me offering a contrarian, Hey, have you thought about this? Which, you know, I like to think makes us all smarter, right? You know, the old rule in debate clubs was you would study an issue. And at the beginning of the debate, you would draw to see which side of the debate you took. And that's how you proved whether or not you could actually know an issue well enough is can you argue both sides? So, uh, you know, for instance, there are some people who are very anti-war um, and anti-violence. All things being equal, that is absolutely my belief. I believe, you know, we sh- violence is the last refuge of the unintelligent and ignorant, as, you know, Asimov said. It's quite... I think that was in the Foundation series. Um, But it's kind of hard to argue with the fact that someone who comes and says violence has never solved anything is just ignorant of history, right? In World War II, I would absolutely have supported violence, going what was happening in the world and what the world was fighting against. And absolutely, that ended because of violence. Now, you can... And you look at the scale of human suffering and say, at a certain point, the violence, and I'd much rather see that being done by a democratically elected, although imperfect, government that may lie to people that may have sins of its own, than a tyrannical fascist government that was rounding up and killing their own citizens in death camps. So, you know, to say violence never solved anything is just very ignorant. The same way you can say, okay, fiat money is responsible for all wars sorry, that's just not true. I know. That, <laughs> because, I, like, I, I can go to back in history, and we could actually find a number of times where fiat money didn't exist, where rival clans were killing each other over scarce resources, over access to meat. Like, as much as people talk about the American and uh, Canadian uh, Native American population or the indigenous people, um, and there were t- incredible times of beauty. I mean, I have two Native American Uh, sisters who we adopted in our family. I grew up going out to the reserves in Canada, um, seeing powwows and being exposed to that culture. A beautiful, incredible culture that was horrendously treated by, you know, obviously the, generally the white man and the Europeans who moved here and took advantage. And um, they, at times, enjoyed cultures of abundance where they practiced gift economies, where their entire economy was actually based off the giving of gifts, as opposed to the collection of objects. Mm -hmm. And in post-scarcity economics, gift economies are incredible. But they still went to war with rival tribes. Most of them who enjoyed that culture of abundance, it was because they had wiped out all their enemies. And they won for their geographic area. And it it allowed them a monopoly on access to food and resources. So, you know, this idea that, okay, now you can make a very strong argument— That the introduction of fiat money that allows for the escalation of a political war machine and defense contractors and the expansion of technologies of war can make war bigger, worse, can make it an easier choice to go to. More often. More often. You could argue that it corrupts the political system by having candidates and politicians who are now dependent on defense. Defense contractors, those are intelligent arguments. Mm-hmm. And that allows us to then go back and say, how could Bitcoin replace that? How can we build an economy where we actually have Bitcoin funded politicians who are personally getting wealthy with Bitcoin, but their citizens are getting wealthy such that anyone who ever talked about going against Bitcoin could never get on a ballot, regardless of the party? That would be a discussion that's worth having. And I think America offers one of the best opportunities for that because you can elect politicians at the local municipal level that I think still are very, relatively free from corruption, at least at the very large scale issue. So you could orange pill 50 or 100 towns across America, do what's happening in Latin America, build better politicians and show that there is an alternative, but don't equate all of the, like there, there are ills in society that aren't always just related to fiat money.
1: Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars, it's about replacing them. So, while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners, ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co/wbd which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up it's sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S bet.io forward slash promotions. Also today, we have Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, what is it, four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining, and I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. You,
2: you don't sound very libertarian. Uh, Based on our first meeting or first two interviews, uh, I'd, I'd maybe wrongly made the assumption that uh, all cypherpunks or the history of the cypherpunks were all probably pretty libertarian. Um, uh, and I've got into a lot of clashes, so many clashes with Bitcoiners because uh, I'm not a libertarian. I mean, I'm, I, I almost agree with everything they say. And I very clearly don't think it works. Or I think if you break down the structures of democracy, you end up either rebuilding it or building authoritarianism. And I know democracy can trend towards authoritarianism, but I, think, I don't think you can coordinate certainly 330 million people without some centralized structures. Now, some will say, well, with Bitcoin you can. I, I think Bitcoin is just one tool.
0: So, when when I think about labels, so w- one of my favorite novels, which is got so much great stuff, I, I recently reread it again, is a Robert Heinlein novel, kind of classic cypherpunk, which is called Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Nope, but I'm going to write it down now. Essentially, the uh, the. Uh, the moon has bec- was a penal col- colony, like Australia was many years ago, and all the kind of governments of the world start shipping all their criminals and all their undesirables to the moon to work on this prison colony. But over time, people are actually born free on the moon, but because they're born in a gravity well there, they can't ever return back, and they want their independence. So the same way, you know, Australia at one point was a prison colony, and then it became a self-selected government. Um, this kind of plays out the... And it's got so many great things. It has like economic lessons because, you know, they literally try to finance their war against earth <laughs> using stolen money and using fiat money. Um, there's an entire debate on how to form proper government. And because they're like, they throw the warden and they, they now are saying, how do we select a government? And so one of the heroes of the book, Professor La Paz, who's this kind of very learned guy, um, describes his politics as a rational anarchist. And uh, when I was very young, I kind of loved that. And he describes it as a rational anarchist believes in personal and individual responsibility, does not believe that responsibility can largely be shared amongst people because at the end of the day, it always comes down to someone making a choice, even if it's four people making a choice. Um, and would prefer to have no laws, and to have everyone just take care of themselves. But the rational part is you understand that that system rarely works for everyone else. And so you're willing to accept the, the least amount of compromises within that goal. And so when they're forming the government, they actually talk about things like, how do you keep government honest? How do you keep government small? How do you reduce? Because once you start down the road of taxation and you give people the right to pass laws that are more often than not, people pass laws for what other people shouldn't do. How many people, how many, how often does someone come into Congress and say, I'm very, very concerned with my desire to smoke cigarettes. Can you please make it illegal? <laughs> no, it's, I'm concerned with your bad habit of smoking cigarettes and I'm going to make it illegal for you. And that's just one example. So, you know, one of the ideas or things that are discussed are like, you know, can you get a, a, a law proposed by one majority a third, right? Or sorry, two thirds, but have any law be able to be repealed by one third. Some of these things were designed or thought of in the Senate and the House and federal in their attempts, but that was almost 250 years ago. I think the closest government that's done a really detailed review on constitutional democracies recently has been New Zealand, And what they did for election of parties and starting to move away from a two-party political system was really, really intelligent. Unfortunately, those things are very hard to update in the United States because you need to have a ratification amongst all the states to update the Constitution or um, a large portion of them. But I believe that we all deserve better government. I believe that the freedom to move your money and to move your voice and to move across borders is essential in keeping governments honest, because uh, if a government can hold you geographically and hold you financially, then it's very easy for that government to ignore your voice. And so in those regards, I think monetary freedom is essential. Freedom of speech and cyberspace is essential to move us on the long road to what I hope is a more peaceful democratic society. But we are at a very small turning point. Because the technologies of AI, the technologies of media mani- manipulation, the understanding that we're getting in psychology and like we're literally taking stuff that mentalist and hypnotists used to learn, and we've built an entire ad age ad industry around it <laughs> in being able to get inside people's insecurities, their wants, their desires, and screw with them and that's just done by the advertising industry. Wait until we have AI software. That is, you know, able to have these rules and customize it, and I mean, this—the technologies of mass control didn't exist before, and I think that's why communism failed. That's why, you know, a lot of the worst parts of socialist, uh, tyrannical socialist governments fell. Um,
2: China has these technologies now,
0: and they're perfecting them. They are. And And we are exporting them. They're exporting them. They're perfecting them. They're embedding them in trade deals with, uh, you know, the Belt and Road strategy in Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, And that will be the war for the future. And if America, Canada, uh, Europe, the G8, Latin America, if we don't create some sort of opposition to that where we agree on certain principles... And we update the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to include cyber rights, monetary freedom, and privacy, Um, and actually start holding countries accountable when they violate those. Well,
2: this is why what's happening in the world right now is super interesting because we're essentially dividing the world into two teams. Let's 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 just treat it as it is. Uh, Russia has been cancelled. China is seen as uh, its own entity, with its own set of rules, its own technologies, its own money. China has been moving off the U.S. dollar, and now Russia's only cha- trading partner, one of their only trading partners, really, is going to be China in the short term. Well, Russia, move, Russia's, you know, had their assets seized. Uh, Are we going to see this opportunity, you know, an opportune moment for China to exert more influence and control around the world to export their technologies? Will you see an axis of countries, uh, which may include India, Iran, China, Russia, move on to the digital yuan? Who, Who knows? So at that time, and the dollar, you know, the dollar's position as the world reserve currency under threat... And it doesn't feel like the U.S. can turn this around. There's a real opportunity for America to be very pro-Bitcoin. And hopefully freedom money wins against surveillance money.
0: Well, not only pro- pro-Bitcoin, but pro-advancement of the human condition through technology and individual freedom. Because that, I think, is a larger mission than just Bitcoin. Bitcoin yep. is a part of it because that will be the long-term response to some of these zones of opposition. So let's imagine. And so, so I love doing exercises with my teams called backcasting, which is where you go out 10 years, 15 years in the future. And you say, okay, what kind of world do we want to create? Or do we imagine? And then what would be some of the preceding events that might lead to that? So, um, Russia and China, and less so China. China has, because they adopted the Great Firewall of China, and because China was so effective at, I think, building cultural terminal uniqueness the idea that, you know, we are the Chinese nation, we are better than everyone, and everyone else's way of life isn't our way of life. And I think there's a very large part of the population in China, not all of them, some of the middle class and upper class. Um, but you saw some of the clampdown on that as some of the upper and middle class, uh, recently with entrepreneurs, with Jack Ma, um, as they had more mobility and they spent more time in the West and they were importing some of that freedom, they had a big crackdown. Yeah. Um, but in Russia, it's been, call it 20 years, where most... Most Russians under 25, under 30, have never known anything other than this assumed freedom. Yes, there's been one political party. Yes, they know that they don't have the same rights to criticize their government that they may see in America.
2: But it's better than under the
0: USSR. Way better than under the USSR. And they've taken a lot of those freedoms as just birthrights. And now that those freedoms are going away... I think Russia has a massive civil war coming on its hands. Um, How that civil war will be played out depends on some of these technologies. So this is where anonymity, mesh networking, encryption becomes so essential because it's impossible to mount a civil disobedience campaign, even to organize. They were organizing on Facebook. Right? That's how they were organizing the protest test. Facebook is now gone out of the country.
2: There's even, I mean, I've read in the last week that uh, there may be fundamental sh- uh, changes to the internet within Russia.
0: Oh, yeah. They cut off, I mean, top-level domains. They're, they're essentially isolating themselves. But if every every single cell phone can be turned on with the right software into a mesh network that can communicate independently that could be passing on messages in a, you know, kind of tour pay it forward uh, anonymous message that never gets routed through the internet. There are so many opportunities to use freedom technologies to build civil disobedience, to put power into the hands of individuals. And Bitcoin's part of that. Bitcoin with satellite being broadcast Blockstream is ensuring that you can access, you know, anywhere you are in the world. If you have a satellite dish, you can still get access to your Bitcoin. You can do antenna-based or even broadcast via shortwave radio a Bitcoin transaction. So when you start doing things like lightning, lightning chat, and you use these same protocols to be able to say, you know what, we could actually communicate. We could organize an army of dissenters, and we could do it in a way that the government has such a hard time tracking, following, and that's just going to increase. With, you know, Elon Musk and what he's doing with Starlink, the more we have satellite-based internet, the more we have mesh networking and encryption tools, it should be next to impossible or so hard for a government to squash lit- uh, protest and dissent if we do things right. And so what that means is the cost to uh, autocratic and t- uh, tyrannical leader should be going up exponentially. While the benefits of adopting that system should be going down just as fast. And part of what will determine that is the speed at which the Western democracies and the, you know, if or what I would consider the more free, not everything is absolute, but the more free societies, um, the faster they invest in technology. So, for instance, let's say that there was a, a set of medical treatments that was call it a million dollars today, but within four or five years could be a few thousand dollars that will cure you of every single cancer, cure you of all disease, and reverse your aging by around 50%. So your biological age will be able to be rolled back. The companies working on all of these have been funded, and I suspect will exist within five years. So this is where we, I joked before about yeah, you li- living so long. This is not just a total joke. I mean, there's a startup in Sil- uh, Silicon Valley, which is one of three that just raised a $2 billion seed round over the, this new anti-aging technique that they've now done with mice, where they took mice that were literally the biological age of 90, and they turned them into mice who were like 15 years old with no cancers, with no side effects, and all of them lived. How? It's, I can give you the research paper. I believe it's called the Fukuyama. I probably wouldn't understand it. I probably would want you to translate it. It's essentially a way of reverting a cell back into its stem cell state where its aging starts to go back. And when this was first discovered, uh, they won the Nobel Prize for it, the scientists. When they first discovered this in 2012, they figured out how to switch these into the stem cell states and reverse aging, but they didn't figure out how to stop it. And so it just kept getting younger. Like Benjamin Button. Yeah, and it would develop all these cancers along the way. So they've been working on this for now 10 years, and two independent teams have now verified the results that they can do it and stop with no cancers. So this means you could go in and say, you know what, I really love my parents. I want them around for another 40 years. I'm going to pay 50000 or $100,000 for their anti-aging to wipe out all their disease, and they literally go back to being 20 or 30 years old. What does that do for a nation's economic status? What does that do for its knowledge, its work- workforce? What if, technolo- what if autocratic governments from parts of a certain part of the world were denied access to those treatments? should they not uphold the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? You want to talk about a sanction? Half the world's living, the 300, and you and your citizens can't. Now they'll try and recreate it. They'll try and steal the technology. But if that's just one of 50 technologies around energy independence, around life extension, around human augmentation and knowledge, around, you know, in all of these areas where we can actually make people's lives fundamentally different on an order of magnitude more, how, much, how beneficial is it to be, a, you know, an oligarch in Russia who has a billion dollars when everyone else is living to 300, <laughs> And are building industries that don't rely on energy or oil at all, and you just saw that your entire income dry up because the world progressed past you. That is what I believe the long-term answer to these things will be, because then it becomes very, very hard for China, for Russia, for some of these countries to tell their citizens, no, no," or, oh, we're still doing good by you.
2: But you also know that the leaders of these countries would still have access to these technologies. Sure. Typically.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's very hard to stay in leadership. It's like, you know, Gaddafi, after a certain point, like, it's very hard to stay in leadership when your entire citizen's population believes you're the most, you know, horrendous evil person and are being fundamentally denied their rights. I just think that the technologies of equality and freedom will start to rebalance the world's order as long as we still focus on certain principles, which is are the technologies being used for the betterment and the individual, or are these technologies being developed by the government to centralize and actually keep their populations poor, keep their population uh, socially divided. So like the culture wars that go, go on in the world, massive distraction. What does it do? It distracts people away from understanding a whole bunch about how money works, about how government works, because people just get fed up and they get apathetic. And that is a huge danger. Whereas, you know, there was a time where we actually, I think in most Western democracies, stood up to the call of freedom and said, you know what? We want to go fight for our country. We want to be proud of our country. We, want, I have more that I agree with as you as a Canadian than I mean, we were at the heart of this recently in Canada. We had the country entirely not torn apart because you need to remember the protests that occurred in Canada. The trucker protest were the most Canadian protests of all time. Not a single window broken. <laughs> like They were picking up trash after themselves. No protest is totally innocent. And there were people's lives in Ottawa who were very disrupted. But this wasn't like a violent protest with fires and uh, windows being broken. But.
2: It was it, a festival. It was dancing.
0: Well, I mean... <laughs> not everyone
2: supported it, though.
0: Not all, not, not all people supported it. I, so, you know, I don't agree with certain aspects of the science position there. But I have relatives. I have family members right now who, due to real immune systems, cannot get the vaccine. And they have been barred from traveling, barred from getting on a plane, and barred from getting medical access in the United States critical medical access that they need that is not available in Canada and they are their life uh, their their potential life is at risk because they can't get public transportation because they aren't vaccinated. So I'm sorry, when it took come to this stance, I supported the rolling back of some of these restrictions. Not because I have a particular stance on vaccines or I'm anti-vax or I just believe restricting people's freedom. To that degree, and what was being done with lockdowns was actually causing more harm. And the science has actually bor- borne this out in terms of people's health, people's ability to, to interact, the depression, you know, all the second order consequences. And it wasn't buying Canada much because Canada has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world at 86. And it was a massive distraction to the fact that they had underinvested in their healthcare system. And their healthcare system was collapsing because of mismanagement. And that was why they focused on taking away, and that's my belief, everyone's freedom. It wasn't because of a mass, you know, problem with getting people the vaccine. It it was simply because of underfunded healthcare systems. And so they had to be totally draconian at the expense of some people's real rights. And so when the truckers, after keeping the economy going for two years, and literally being alone in their trucks, were told, hey, You're now not allowed to cross the border or you're going to have to wait four hours to cross the border. I could totally understand the response and the fact that they did that peacefully and the fact that they exercised their civil rights without violating any laws, I support that. And if you want to arrest them for committing a crime, then pass a law over, you know, public loitering in Ottawa. Don't call them terrorists and Nazis and seize their bank accounts. And so, you know, once again, an example of how financial, financial inclusion or financial censorship gets used to demonize a certain part of the population. And that's why, from a messaging point of view, I am such a big believer that we got to find areas where we agree with people, where we can sit down across the table and say, you know what, we don't have to agree on everything. And five of six of your points are probably 10 of my points are things that we'll never agree on. But let's agree on the base principles of freedom that exist in a technology we both love and use that as our common ground.
2: And if you remove the ability to financially censor people, you will remove one element of demonizing people, which hopefully will bring people back towards towards each other.
0: Yeah.
2: It's hard to argue against, like... uh, I'm pro-freedom and I'm pro-smaller government but within a defined set of rules that we can agree on that make it a work.
0: Well, pro-good good government, anti-ineffective government. Because, yeah. you know, you look at what's happened since World War II in the United States with the lack of funding in certain core things like infrastructure. And then you look at the speed at which China is building brand new cities, hospitals, uh, it's hard to argue. You're like, okay, wow. Being autocratic and totalitarian where you can like literally say, okay, we're going to throw all these citizens out of their town. We're going to rebuild the town. And if we displace a bunch of people, but for the citizens in that town, they have their rights infringed. It wasn't so good for them. So the trick is, what should we be able to learn from these systems? What would it take for us to have good government where we could put up For instance, China's building, I think, 240 nuclear power plants in the next 10 years. That's the
2: 240?
0: Yeah. And they've got the cost down to, I I forget the exact number I saw. I recently saw an interview, but I think their cost per nuclear power plant is down into a couple hundred million. Um, And these are some of the safest uh, nuclear power plants. They're not the safest. The safest system in the world uh, that we've seen recently, I think, is the Bill Gates project, um called terra I'll, i'll find you the reference but it's this new form of nuclear reactor that fails totally safe so like you could literally bomb it and it would never explode and the nuclear material is contained and there's no nuclear waste um he has for almost 25 years tried to get a pilot plant built with that technology and almost got it through before what happened in uh Japan, Fukushima. Fukushima. And, I mean, more people have died from carbon pollution than it ever died from nuclear by, like, a a factor of thousands, right? Yep. Um, And so society just isn't good at this. But we can't build a nuclear power plant. The regulatory costs, the uh, debate, the time it gets locked up— Every time, by the time you get half a group supporting it, there's a new slate of politicians because, you know, you talk about 10 to 15 years of regulatory approval and still nothing happening. So people just stop investing in it. And what does that lead us? It leads us to being dependent on foreign oil, having to do deals with dictators. It leads us to, you know, not being able to talk about an agenda of actually free and abundant power. Um, And so it's just so short-sighted in so many ways. And... We have to be able to look at ourselves and say, okay, how do we change that? How do we get the best parts of technology advancement that can be beneficial, advantageous for our society, and build more freedom and more independence? And that's not always just based off how much more stuff can we buy for cheap from some foreign government that's going to build it for less pennies on the dollar because we don't care about them.
2: Takes us back to that first point of being focused on the right things. Yeah. Which is something, that's come up a lot of times recently, Danny. Yeah. It has come up a lot. Comes up a lot. Focus and energy, and are you picking the right battles? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something we think a lot about. Like, is this good for Bitcoin? Yeah. It's fascinating. I didn't didn't realize we we're going to talk about this. <laughs> 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 Yeah. Um, what else do you want to talk about? Are we good?
0: <laughs> I. Um, well, someone asked me recently. I was at. Um, that was a fascinating conversation. Someone asked me recently, um, "What excites you, recently about Bitcoin?" And I remain still very excited for all the original reasons.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. But, yeah, I I did mention I think the amount of stuff, very cool, interesting stuff I'm seeing in terms of uh, application development on the layer two um, and some of the speed at which some of those teams are spinning it up absolutely blows me away. Um, I think some of the steps that are happening at the nation state, if they're navigated well, and that's just not El Salvador Although I'm going down there on a trip recently, pretty soon to learn, um, and spend some time there. If the El Salvador government does a few things right, they don't have to get everything perfect. But I, I'm kind of encouraged by this idea of them doing like a post-mortem. So in like software development, after every release, you always do a post-mortem where you look at, okay, what could we have done differently? What did we do right? What we did... Do- you know, just as a self-learning experiment, doing that in certain communities is very, very hard. In politics, I think it's even harder, because a gov- you know, a politician standing up and saying, "After four years in office, here's all the things I would do better or different," is usually not a politician that gets re- reelected, right? But oh, wouldn't it be great? Mm-hmm. If they went out and said, "A year and two years in, here is everything we would do different." Or we want to improve on around custody, around transparency of the balances, around, uh, you know, maybe some better, uh, you know, how some of the wallets are done and the custody rules say, oh, we made something, we made a choice and it worked out well initially or we had some hiccups. And here's what we learned and would do because that playbook could literally form the onboarding playbook for the next four nations that are working on it.
2: That's a really fascinating point.
0: And I think that level of self-analysis also allows you to detract against the IMF. It allows you to build political longevity into your position because you will go down in history as the people who actually not only figured out the playbook, but were honest enough with the world. Because when the IMF comes in and fuds nations joining and points to a one-on-one and say, don't do this. Right, like we're gonna we're gonna reduce your credit rating, or we're gonna have punishments, or you won't get access to IMF loans. So that's exciting. Uh, the stuff Blockstream's doing, I mean, I'm, Blockstream has done some really exciting stuff, and just you know, the whole idea of them as the Cisco of Bitcoin, I think, was underappreciated for a long time. Yep. But now with some of the work, uh, both technical, but also on like the Bitcoin bond, because if we get the financialization formula worked where the Bitcoin community can offer the world uh, tokenized uh, bonds that have Bitcoin incentive. What that does for changing economics, you could literally go into a small town and say, you know what? Instead of doing a 25-year zero-coupon municipal bond, which is, if you're familiar, that's how usually towns finance a lot of public goods projects. Um, You go in and say, you know what? You could do an economic... Citizens economic incentive bond where every citizen who moves to your country gets $5,000 or $10,000 worth of Bitcoin every year, provided that five to seven years from now, they're still here. And you could finance that entire thing with Bitcoin. And now you have like your orange pilling cities and towns left, right and center because you've changed how they raise money, you've changed how they derive tax revenue, you've provided economic empowerment and you can go to some places where like the average income is 25, 30,000 or 35 where they're dealing with drug addiction, they're dealing with poverty, they're dealing with job loss and literally come in and do I mean the last example we saw of this was native casinos. And when they came in even though the casinos had some very negative impacts because gambling sometimes does that, but it would provide an entire community in some cases, with enough reserves or enough annuity and revenue share that they could send all their citizens to go to university who previously were denied access. And so I think there's some of these things. That, those are the, some of the big ones that really excite me that are going on.
2: What about you, Danny? What excites you most in Bitcoin?
0: Oh, I, I think the, the big thing that's been a topic this week has been the mining, like the, the second order of effects of mining, securing the grid, and that sort of that, that oh, yeah. fascinates me.
2: Yeah, so there's two conversations that came up this week. There's the one specifically here where we are now in Texas with uh, ERCOT. Have I got it right now? (laughs) ERCOT. Exciting work. Yeah, exciting work. Um, Margot Paez, who we had on, wants to do a research paper on looking at how miners are integrating with the grid to bring a bit of stability to it something i don't believe satoshi ever planned for uh, but is one of these fascinating things that's come out of it and then matthew pines discuss how the semiconductor industry is being forced to rethink foundries due to the risks with taiwan and there is a need for mining chips and perhaps that's going to incentivize the build out of new foundries in other countries to support miners and i want to know what what's all the all the future industries that are going to get changed by Bitcoin that we don't know about yet, because yeah. there's going to be other things.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I find both those fascinating, by the way. And I think, like, energy and chip advancement, I mean, it was something that even at the beginning of Blockstream I would talk about, and it would just shock. We Bitcoin literally self-funded the advancement of ASICs from, like, 40 nanometers down... You know, they were one of the earliest adopters of ASICs. And yes, other industries were, you know, like mobile phones and other things were riding that same wave. But all of those had like massive amounts of venture capital. This was just self-funded by individuals who were deploying the best new chips they could. And seeing that was fascinating as we moved into ASICs. Bitcoin has also funded some of the most incredible advancements in crypto and uh, computer security. Right. Because now, instead of just protecting your family photos or your email, you actually have a bear certificate digital instrument. And it's forced the world to finally catch up and say, how do we actually build secure computing? Which is critical for the future, because, you know, the actual trust and the actual issues around AI, around governance are going to require a massive investment in computer security that Bitcoin has funded and done. Um. But, yeah, I also think some of the industries that may be most exciting are ones that we can't think of now because they're, they won't be industries directly, like, one-to-one affected. But there are certain clear applications. Like, I think we'll be able to get, deal with getting rid of spam. A lot of the identity issues online when we actually have ubiquitous lightning payments and the idea of, you know, doing some sort of hash-cash which is what it was originally designed for. But, you know, those are all very exciting. But the ones I'm most excited about or hopeful for, hopefully, are the ones that Bitcoiners will create with the economic freedom. Yes. So, you know, the Bitcoiner goes out and says, you know what? We can now afford to tackle this big society issue because thankfully I was into Bitcoin very very early. And that's where my hope for Bitcoiners is or those who have enjoyed some economic benefit from Bitcoin, is that they have that sense of gratitude and they have that sense of wanting to reinvest. And that doesn't just mean reinvest in Bitcoin, but finding issues you care about passionately, you know, because, you know, the same way way in the past, we had industrialists, we had Carnegie, we had Rockefeller, a lot of their wealth creation wasn't exactly, you know, innocent, right? The old adage was, show me a massive fortune and I'll show you a massive crime. Um, because some of those, uh, you know, very large, very wealthy industrialists use mon- monopolistic power. They used, in some cases, violence in the case of, you know, standard oil. Um, but some of those people reached a point in their lives where they were like, OK, I can't take it with me. So I'm going to at least do some image <laughs> rehab by build- going and building some things. Um, I don't think our generation and the people enjoying Bitcoin wealth need to be like that and should ever be ashamed of how they made their money um, by getting into something they believed early, by having, you know, diamond hands (laughs) and sticking around when everyone else was afraid. Um, And as they enjoy that economic prosperity, as we see Bitcoin's price climb to, you know, a few more orders of magnitude higher than it is. I think you'll see a new class of Bitcoin millionaires, hundred millionaires, billionaires, who are now sitting there saying, okay, what good can I do with this money? And how can I benefit society in ways that I, you know, they believe in. And I'm hoping that some of the effect of that will also start to have a trickle down. The same way we saw venture cap, some of the best entrepreneurs, you know, were created in kind of Silicon Valley, the density of intensity, because people did have success they were young enough not to want to retire. And they're like, well, if I did it once, I'm going to do it again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what gave us kind of this, you know, pay it forward, reinvest culture, uh, willingness to mentor. And I, I think, or my hope is, we'll see that on a very broad scale globally around Bitcoiners and some of what they choose to do with their wealth. Amazing. Before we close out, if that's the stuff that interests you, is there anything that you're sort of concerned about? Uh, I mean, we are definitely entering a very, very dangerous time uh, where, like I said, I think most of it I addressed on my last call, kind of this singularity age Mm -hmm. and the uh, increasing threats of some of these issues. Um, We're approaching that age where, and it will only grow where the cost of a mistake gets closer and closer to being, as that vulnerable world thesis talks about, a mistake we can't come back from and that is you never like to be in a situation where you know kind of from a risk just you know security thinking for instance like and that's where that's where some of my concerns lie because if a couple of things go wrong in the world and we haven't built up the resilience or we don't know how to manage our human reaction to it then the example here is like after 9-11, right? Uh, 9-11 was definitely a tragedy, right? But, uh, and I would never wanna minimize it for, I mean, anyone who lived through it obviously saw how horrific it was. But when we judge it on the scale of all human deaths and all human suffering, um, you know, that many people die in car accidents every day, right? Like, yes, it was done all at once, and it was done very tragically. And dramatically. And dramatically. And it was done by a very small group of people wanting to, you know, actually attack another group. But the reaction to that, um, and what it's cost us in going to war, what it cost in, you know, the loss of freedoms, and in some areas, the uninformed or unthought-out reactions to that because it was so emotional and um Some would argue that some of the costs of those things far exceeded what the actual attack or some better ways of dealing with it. So Bruce Schneier, the cryptographer, always talks about this in in security terms, in terms of security theater, right? So many of the things that we do around airport security are just security theater versus do effective airline doors and actually design x-ray machines better, which, you know, you know. American uh, airports haven't, right? The European ones are actually distributed very close to the gate, if you're familiar with, in most of those.
2: I travel a lot.
0: Yep, and so, um, you know, the American ones, you make one mistake at one gate, you need to empty out the entire wing and go back and run everyone through the security machine again. So this has time once in a while where they realize that the machine was off and you know, they don't know how many people went through without being scanned. And they have to empty it all out and restart. Um, the European security machines, that doesn't happen as if that were to happen, you're dealing with a very small amount of people right at the gate because the scanners are at the gate. And so Bruce Schneier argued those two things, if you do those two things effectively, you've solved 95% of your airline security problems. Whereas so much of everything else we do, taking off the shoes and doing this and doing that and, you know, the massive lineups and hassles were really security optics, security theater to make people feel better about going back to an airline industry. Uh, And that fear was actually very small lived because people have short term memories. There's a period of time following 9-11 when I have friends in New York who are like, "Okay, I'm never walking into a skyscraper again. I will never do it again after seeing what happened on 9-11. 60, 90 days later, they're back in a skyscraper, and, you know, the initial trauma was over it. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> all, all this to say that I think the demand for us to be more informed and thoughtful about how we address big problems, how we react to bad unintended consequences, that the call for that to get smarter, faster, better couldn't happen fast enough. At a time when I fear we are not, we're stuck into some of the debates of the past about whether or not someone should have a certain civil rights or whether or not a certain religious issue should exist or, you know, who gets access on in the Supreme Court. I mean, these wedge debate issues that seem to, you know, really keep people distracted and stuck in debates from, you know, frankly, I think 50 or 60 years ago. And we keep rehashing these instead of learning how to be more intelligent. And so that's just where, you know, this is, uh, oh, what was it? The guy who did uh, King of the Hill, Judge, uh, uh, is it? M- it. Matt, uh, anyway, he did that famous- uh, Mike Judge. Mike Judge. Ah, oh, yes. He did that famous movie that was kind of like, it, it, it was kind of cheesy, but it's- uh, it was essentially where this soldier falls asleep and wakes up in the future. And he had an IQ of 70. He wakes up as the smartest man on earth because. Um, oh, I don't know this. I'll get you the name. Anyway, it's famous, famous. And basically predicted that over time, uh, the current system encourages people who are less thoughtful and less intelligent to take over society. And, and that anyone with an IQ above a certain level will become essentially an extinct species. And, uh, I just hope we, you know, okay. I hope we do not go down that path because we need to be having better conversations and encouraging the best part of our uh, thoughtfulness and society to make their voices heard. And I see, I'm a little concerned about, and Eric Weinstein brought this up, I think quite uh, effectively. Um, there's just this trend towards apathy and there's this trend towards I can't make my voice heard because we've seen what raising your voice can sometimes do and the cost that people pay, like you talked about. And we will desperately need these voices. And I'm worried that if people haven't flexed their their voices or haven't, haven't gotten in the habit of using them effectively in the right forms Uh, to move towards collaboration, to move towards better decision-making, to move towards better decisions, then when we need those voices the most, they may not be there.
2: Yes. Yeah, I fully understand. I fully appreciate what you're saying. And I think it helps just having conversations like this, more conversations publicly, long form, better than getting on Twitter and arguing with a nim who has no social capital to lose. Um, so I appreciate you coming on doing again. This is a uh, third time in very recent times. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot again in the future. Uh, I, I, I love talking to you. So uh, thank you.
0: Peter, thank you. Thank you, guys. Really enjoy it. Thanks, Danny.
1: All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.